0: this is pretty much pop a culture podcast today discussing the whole idea of pictures telling stories our guest today is las vegas artist joseph watson i'm mark linton meyer and the secret portrait of myself in my attic never ages
1: i'm erica spires in new york city and if you give an erica a cookie she'll be your friend forever
2: And I'm Brian Hurt. And I think a picture is worth a hundred words, but those are the pictures I draw.
3: Joseph Watson, illustrator, and I love to create images that people react to.
0: Yes, I've been really enjoying looking at all the samples and things for sale on your website. Can you kind of walk us through just in general the types? I know we're going to talk some children's illustrations, but you also have sculptures on the street. Walk us a little through that.
3: So basically, I'm known for painting uh, things that happen in life. So whether it's good or bad, I create images that people can relate to. So whether it's like crowds at everyday things that go on, like coffee shops and things like that, for example, or showing change over time based on consequences or doing conceptual flora pieces. I have like over 50 something paintings of this little blue flower going through all of these different challenges in life, whether it's surviving disasters or falling in love, finding your soulmate, things like that. Vehicles made out of musical instruments. That's what I'm known for, for my fine art stuff. Something that really bring something to push the imagination to the uh, fullest boundary as far as children's books go i the illustrator of the gogo go, greta book projects i uh, teamed up with dana satterwhite who actually co-created and wrote the stories so we teamed up and did this independently and built a following and yeah it's all about just encouraging
0: the youth to do anything their mind sets out to do basically and we picked this topic because when we did kind of a scoping call and you said Yes, I do pictures that tell stories, and that immediately just grabbed me because I like just anything that sort of tries to combine media. The idea that every picture tells a story is just a thing that's thrown around. I was looking on the web, like people use it in children's education about art. I wanted to explore what that actually means because so much of it seems to me, like in a children's book, you have the text right there. (laughs) Like So of course, if you already have a story in mind, then the picture is going to tell that story. And of course... Any picture can suggest any number of things. And there are normal things like the expression somebody has. And if you've captured that well in an illustration, much less a photo, then you can sort of imagine what's going on in their head. Like, you know, just these very basic associative things. But just wanted to get a little into maybe cover some fine art, definitely cover children's illustrations. I think that
2: ties in great to the topic of pictures telling stories, because words notwithstanding that adults reading to kids or older kids can read, a lot of us first engage just with the images, right? And as I was thinking about this topic, you know, one of the things that we had to do was understand that not everyone listening, some will definitely go seek out your artwork and we'll know exactly what we're talking about with Coco Greta or they'll know it already, but others might not, or they're in their car and please don't take out your uh, phone to look at this right now. But I feel like with children's books, some of them, it's the art that's way more iconic and memorable than the stories. And some of the ones that we had kicked around, Dr. Seuss is maybe one where it's both because I think a lot of us can conjure up the words and the images, but we had also mentioned where the wild things are. In truth, I know a couple lines from it, but I really remember the imagery very, very well. And I admit I was looking at go go Greta more with an eye for the art than the story for this discussion because we were talking to you, but it's so striking in its style and in you know some of the uh, themes that you always repeat and kind of how you present her. And so even though she doesn't not identical from one to the next, there are those things that are always about her in every picture. So we have that continuity of storytelling. I guess my first question would be to you is how your collaboration process works, being half of the storytelling team. Generally, how does it work for you?
3: Dennis Otterwhite, the writer for the project, he presented the manuscript. I think at the time it was the first three or five books to see if I was interested in working on the project. So I took a look and there were no pictures or anything like that. It was just it even looked like he typed it out on a typewriter. So he just handed this stapled manuscript to me. I checked it out. And from the words alone, that really sparked the potential in the visuals, what this can be, since there wasn't anything established yet. So in my head, I could almost imagine what this would look like because of the words and how poetic it was and the way it flowed and just the timing and cadence of it. It just inspired me to drive those visuals. So those visuals were actually based on and inspired by those initial words that were written so without those words i would have come up with a completely different look to the story i know what you're saying with the pictures resonating more in a a kid's head through you know the time they're an adult it's just burned in but truthfully without those words those pictures wouldn't exist in the form they are in so um yeah that's what happened with
2: greta i'm just struggling to get you to throw dana under the bus (laughs)
1: i know he's so
2: humble (laughs) i know i wish i could but that's the total truth behind it how much does greta look like your first draft of her
3: oh gosh the very first sketch i I would say like a huge difference so we went through all these various character studies before coming up with the final design of greta we went through like boy characters oh wow actually i knew i saw it somewhere
1: right in front of you
3: (laughs) please we will describe it So these are some of the earlier sketches here. So I quickly blasted these out and shared them with Dana. And we decided to take like the dress off of number one right here, the glasses off of number six, the shoes from number three, but swap the colors just to make it a little more special and memorable. You know, like something almost not right and rememberable. So she has two different shoes. We want to open up like a little bit of dialogue, like why two different color shoes? So things like that. So this is like the early, early stuff where she came from. Then she developed into what you see now. And the character is strongly resemblance to Dana's daughter, actually, at the time when she was about three years old or so. Initially, we were trying to decide, OK, do we want this to be a boy character, girl character? What's the physical appearance? You know, like, what do we want to do with this? Because this will most likely be several books beyond what the drafts were written. So we were very calculated with what we did with this. You know, how would it look on uh, eventually like merchandise, animated cartoon? How will it translate to 3D? Will boys like this, adults like this, kids from all around the world, how will they relate to this? So we kind of tweaked things until we came up with a uh, pretty nice design ran with it and released it and got some pretty solid response off of that. And We're kind of known for that too, the Go-Go Greta project. We're those dudes that did the Go-Go Greta books.
2: Much friction between the two of you over any decisions, big or small, or has it been pretty easy? Healthy debates. Here's what happens. I read the script and
3: I translate that script into a visual. I submit it to Dana and he's like, I don't know, man. I don't know. Sharks just swimming in the water. That's not special enough, man what if we do this? Then we kind of brainstorm back and forth. And the next thing you know, we turned like a uh, illustration of just sharks in the water swimming with Greta, because that can be interpreted wrong from, you know, parents and kids into like a underwater playground with sharks and starfish and jellyfish swimming around. So we put that Greta twist to it. So he bounces something to me, I bounce it back, brainstorm, make it super Greta special, then go about the final illustration on it. So that's kind of been our process all along. And we still kind of work that way today. So yeah, it's not really like friction, but it's more of how can we make this in the best gruta way as possible.
1: Does it ever really go the opposite way where not even with you guys or with you guys, great, but do you know of any specific children's books where they start with illustrations and then somebody writes a story based on illustrations?
3: I've heard of cases like that. Um, I can't name any notable ones off the top of my head. But I definitely have, you know, there's like illustrators and uh, various artists that I know who have like a bunch of images in this story. And I'm like, actually, I do know some for sure. I don't
0: want to <laughs> say any names. So I don't know if this is entirely on point, but i had heard that Stan Lee actually ended up doing that a lot with his illustrators with like early Spider-Man and things like that, because he was running so many books at the same time that it's just like, here's the outline of the story. Give it to the artist draw some stuff, (laughs) you know, make that story happen, however you picture it. And then I'll come up with dialogue later and I'll do it in five minutes. But that's like, you can only do that because you just really don't care that much. (laughs) Whereas (laughs) It sounds like the opposite thing with you two that you're, you know, trying to just really brainstorm back and forth and make this the best possible thing.
3: Yeah. With us, it pretty much starts with the words, just so there's that strong foundation of what the visuals will be built on.
2: I tend to treat the images as more sacrosanct than the words. And I know reading to kids in the past, I've changed the story, especially preliterate kids. I can't do anything about the pictures because they're there. And I have to, that's what I have to work with, right? But the joke on The Office about one of the characters is kids think that family circus is funny because you know he's always making up his own <laughs> captions. But that's what you have to live with is the kid might be getting the narrative in any number of ways, but they're only getting the story from the page. And I feel like even looking at the cover, there's no story being told yet. Right. I'm looking at busy as can be, but there's so much going on and you can't help but impose a narrative on that. I think you would making a lot of assumptions and filling in gaps, but there's so much information there in terms of setting and intent and mood and all those things that won't get started until the, the actual book gets going.
3: That is true. and But also that cover actually sums up, it's a uh, summary, a synopsis of the internal components of that book. So what we're trying to do as creators of that book is to get that person to flip that first page. And then we want to them engaged so we we want to have that compelling cover and get them to dive into that book but interpretation of that cover yeah you're right it can be interpreted in many different ways i've heard like all sorts of things and also with my other art it's very interesting the way people look at an image and what they get out of it sometimes people look into images and they're like i love the way you painted yourself holding that painting in your piece And I'm like, really? Where? So I look and they point it out and I'm just like, oh, wow. Or there's uh, some of the floral series pieces. They look at it and they're like, I love the way that if you squint your eyes, you see a Siamese cat's face in the image throughout all of the pieces. And in my head, I'm like, I didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard it from several people. So it must be true. So it's very interesting the way that people's eyes digest what you drew.
1: Right. And then, like you were saying, that also really depends on culturally where that person is coming from. Right. So one of the articles I found in looking for this was a Mother Jones article. And the author was saying they read a picture book, The Sea Serpent and Me, to school children in Granada. And in this, there's a little serpent that just grows really large. And she's like asking the kids, like, well, what, what do you think she should do? It, you know, it's, it's getting too big. And one of the kids says, kill him, cook him. And she was like, oh, I'd never even thought of that. But to this kid, okay, like that made sense. Like, why would you not eat this? There's food there. And of course, you know, that's one example of I'm sure many, but you have to think as either an illustrator or an author of children's books to think about what is your market for this and are you going to sell it, try to sell it worldwide and how do you do that and how do you make this a universal story?
2: Yeah.
3: Different faces from different places. They're going to think different things. You know, being in the art gallery scene, people coming to Vegas through the doors from all over the world. We ask, like, hey, what do you think of that particular thing, whether it's a book or a painting? And you'd be surprised. We see it one way, but I can't predict how everybody is going to see it. So, yeah, that's definitely one thing to keep in mind.
1: Do you feel like that's a unique thing of being an artist in Las Vegas and having all those different perspectives? How much like has that actually or do you think that has changed your perspective as an artist to get all these different interpretations thrown at you all the time?
3: Oh, definitely. Yes. It helped navigate the way my brush hits that canvas, basically. And I'm always thinking about that end user, that end viewer with my uh, pieces, people from this particular part of the world or that particular part of the world based on all the other individuals who have come to the gallery and put their eyes on it and let me know what they think supported it, purchased it, collected it, whatever, or not collected it. Those things feed in to why I do what I do.
0: Yeah. I've noticed for your non-children's artworks to transition a little bit, like there's this one that there's a video of you presenting that I'll link folks to called walk up, walk out. You know, it seems typical that you describe that there's a story to all these and you kind of present it that the picture just describe it to people it's, it's sort of a three or four story building slightly slanted with a lot of people walking upstairs or across but there's like street lights in the middle of it so it's outside i don't know say a little more about you give your take on what this is and then we can so the piece titled walk up walk out it's deeply inspired by
3: Theater, So stage sets, things like that. Also, it's deeply inspired by the want of people to do better in life. So I wanted to create something that was almost a visual tool that people can look at and just really ignite them to climb the steps of success. So that's where the whole thing came from. And also there's a movie called A Rear Window from the 60s, I guess, like in Technicolor. And that was also kind of an inspiration as well. So what you see is, yeah, it's a multi-tiered sort of stage set with many stairs. At the very bottom of the piece, you see a cluster of people down there with kind of like their heads down. And those are the people who are complaining in life that it's not fair They want things just pretty much given to them. However, you see the other people who took the initiative to just really step up in their life, they're climbing up those stairs. So on the right side of the painting, there's a guy with a hat on and he has an orange glow. On the left side of the painting, there's a woman, she has an orange glow. And those are the people who just got enlightened. That little voice clicked in their head. And it's like, you know what? You have to do better for your life. Even though you're doing better than most, you can do even better. And in the middle of the piece, I put a guy of short stature. He's next to a a dwarf orange tree with a single orange on it. And that represents sometimes in life, you have to give yourself a morsel, a reminder for why you're working so hard right there, right next to that guy. So he can give himself a little treat as he's climbing up the uh, steps of success. And at the very, very top of the piece is a homeless man with a dog on a leash. And the homeless man has a newspaper in his hand. That guy, he actually, he went to the libraries and studied books on real estate You know, all for free and he's well on his way to becoming a successful, you know, uh, self-starter type guy while everybody else is beneath him. So you have this homeless guy about to strike it rich and a lot of people who are just like, you know, working their way up and you have the people at the very bottom who
1: are just like not happy with their lives. What does the X mean? on the third
3: level. If it's in a window, that's, yeah, very typical of my structures. It's inspired by various lattice structures and radio towers and things like that. So I like to incorporate those like sort of X marks into my pieces. It's just one of those signature sort of ingredients in my uh, painting recipe, I guess you can
2: say. Going through this exercise of telling people what this means, you've taken something that can mean anything from the universe of possibilities and distilled it down to what it means to you, the artist. And I can see from maybe a sales perspective, you've kind of boosted your chance of selling a piece like this because someone who had no idea what it might mean or didn't have enough imagination to figure it out, now, now they know. And you've made it kind of concrete for them. But haven't you also stripped away a lot of possibility at the same time? It might have really resonated with someone differently. And that opportunity is lost to them. I'm not impugning what you're doing at all. It just it occurs to me that it's as I walk around an art gallery, sometimes all I see is maybe I'll see the title if I choose to or I will read what the artist wanted to say about it, or I might know nothing and I can have it mean to me what it means to me. So I'm just curious what your take is as the artist. I know exactly where you're coming from on that, which is 100% true. Well, you
0: can just leave it right there. 100% true (laughs) is just the great place to go. Sorry, keep keep going.
1: It's all right. I'll still have a bone to pick with you on that, Brian.
0: That should have been the name of the podcast, Brian. We (laughs) forgot. To me,
3: as an artist and an art, you know, a gallerist, art dealer, a piece must stand on its own and be successful inside of the interpretation of the eye of the viewer without the artist or the gallery is there, or without a description on a website. Because, yeah, what if the person doesn't read English? Or what if the person, I don't know, has some other sort of disabilities to uh, comprehend, uh, you know, the definition of the art. So the painting itself must stand independently of any definition. But at the same time, the painting was built with a purpose of inspiring people. So my thing is really letting the person know why I painted the piece as well as the purpose of that piece. When I'm not there at the gallery or online, when people are browsing my stuff, they do see the piece and they see my meaning of it. In some cases, they don't. If it ends up on you know someone else's website, it can affect the sale or non-sale of a piece for sure. But that's the price I pay for creating a piece with a meaning behind it. It's not going to be for everybody. It's not. I'm hoping that when I convey the uh, meaning of the piece to a person that they support it and at the same time, without me conveying the meaning of the piece, I want them to support it. And when people have their own interpretation of the piece, when they have that without me telling it to them, and then when I explain it to them, and if it makes it that much more appealing to them, that's even better. But yeah, there's going to be that portion of people that are like, "Ah, oh, yeah, I don't want it now because I thought it meant something else. But I know this from you know all the years being at the gallery and doing all the exhibits. That's one of the things that can happen. So make it work independently and make it work with that description because you have to let it resonate with uh, all sorts of folks. But it's not going to be 100 uh, percent acceptable by everybody. That's almost impossible.
2: And Mark and Erica know that I've played this before, but reception theory says that your intent doesn't really matter. And regardless of what you say it's about, it's the consumer of the art and what it means to them is what it means to them. And what you intended might be interesting or it might color their interpretation once they know it or it might not. And I'm not negating Art history is a thing, right? I I took art history classes in college, and it's great to know so much about the art in terms of the artist and the time period and the intent and related pieces of art and all those things that go along with it. But I would tend to think on the whole that people knowing more about what you mean by something probably does benefit you. And so having social media as a way for you to do that when you can't be present in a gallery to tell them has got to be a, a net benefit for you.
3: Definitely. That backstory validates that piece for sure. And after all, you know, we're not going to be here a hundred years from now. So ideally, the work will last into the hundreds of years and the new audience that are like our great, great grandkids, I'm hoping it lasts and has value to them. But it's very difficult as an artist to just please everybody
0: with it. Well, I can understand, especially with a painting, that it takes so long to paint. I know you're very fast. I've seen some of your videos of you (laughs) sketching out, but still, there's so many details in here That, of course, your mind is going to be spinning. That it's not just like, you know, you have a singular image of a person sitting there, you know, the Mona Lisa or whatever, and like, I'm going to block out everything else. I'm going to meditate on this one image. Like, no, for as long as it's taking to add these more details, you have more things in your brain spinning, coming up with more details of the story. So it becomes like a novel here you know, depending on how long it takes. is that seem accurate in terms of, whereas you're, when you're doing something for a children's book, it's obviously going to have a lot fewer elements. You're presenting that one little piece of the story versus this where it's sort of a movie in itself.
3: Yeah, creating illustrations for children's books, you have to keep in mind the attention span of a kid. However, there's that fine balance too of having that hidden morsel, that Easter egg in the piece. So not making it too complicated that their young eyes cannot decipher the shape system and you know story and what's going on with the piece but just enough to capture their attention and let them explore and find things easily so yeah it's a different level of making a complex composition or piece with children's books but for adults yeah the mind definitely races 100 miles an hour trying to get so many ideas out whether it's on one piece or a series of pieces or a more simple piece it's just never enough time to finish anything
1: I had so many thoughts and then so many other things were brought to my attention that then I I was just like, I don't even like, I guess it just constantly fascinates me how much thought is put into every piece of art, right? I guess I hesitate to say, if you're a good artist, you put a lot of thought into things because I'm sure there are people who just can throw things around and it looks gorgeous. In particular, I, I, I was thinking about what Brian said and how much I mostly disagree with that. I know you were just doing it for argument's sake, Brian, as well, but I can't think of very many times when learning the reason behind a painting has made me like it less. And then right after I thought that, I thought this morning I was on uh, Instagram and I follow this artist and she was going on about Picasso, in particular, uh, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, and... She absolutely hates the painting. And she, you know, she's not only a talented painter, but, you know, has a degree in in fine art and was telling us the history behind that piece and why she finds it offensive. And it was really interesting. So then I was just thinking, yeah, you're, you're totally right. Sometimes you can ruin it for somebody by telling them. Now, I don't know if Picasso's reasoning behind the piece was the same as what this artist was saying. But yeah, you definitely can run the risk of people not liking your painting because of it. However, usually I feel like I would rather know that information. So I know if I want to support that artist or not.
2: I thought Guernica was like a aftermath of a frat party and I wanted it as a poster above my bed and it turns out it's the Spanish Civil War. (laughs) And Forget that, man. Uh, I don't want that anymore. You know, actually, if
3: we all look around our houses or drive around and if we really found out the true meaning of a lot of things i don't know i would probably be shocked i know I, I like the way things work you know that i have i like the way things look but if i really knew you know the true intent and you look deeper into you know the production methods and things like that behind it then yeah i could see how these customers would think that with artwork you know once they find that story out i can totally see that happening now
2: I tend to just think a little bit more with the written word when it comes to this because I just have more examples on hand. But I think about the Chronicles of Narnia, which I read as a kid and they were just fantasy stories and come to learn that they are Christian allegory. And I admit that I could have let that go into my system in a way where I didn't like it as much or I liked it differently. And what I think. I end up doing was just rejecting that as well. That's fine, but it doesn't mean that much to me in terms of my enjoyment of it. So whatever C.S. Lewis's intent was, he still ended up creating something that was meaningful for me at the level I
0: wanted to engage it at. I had the opposite reaction to that. That the, when I actually went as an adult to read the first book, it just seemed such a transparent allegory to me now that I didn't want anything else to do with it. It just seemed very ham-handed because it was so. So transparent. Did you read it as a kid, Mark? I did. Yeah, like the whole series, except for the last one. It seemed like the last one was a bummer. But I think they were read to (laughs) me.
2: (laughs) For me, it's always headcanon, right? Like what I accept to be part of the canon of whatever art. I'm engaging in a part I just ignore. So in my mind, there's just one Back to the Future movie and the other two some fan might have made. But And that fan might have been the same director who made the first one, but I don't acknowledge them as as being part of the thing. And if I'm looking at your artwork and I see something completely different in the stairs and you say, oh, no, I didn't intend that, or the the X's, and I say, well, it's it's clear what those X's mean. And you say, well, no, I just put them in there. And I say, no, they actually mean something really important and central. I'm going to hold on to that. But I've got to say, I do appreciate also just how much, as Mark was getting at, how much there is to look at. And I appreciate that amount of detail. I didn't see the same video that Mark did about watching you work. Are you always a fast worker when it comes to painting? Yeah, pretty much. Unless it
3: was, I would say, more of my commission pieces or more for clients, collectors, those I typically work on a little bit slower pace. But for the most part, like any of my live streams on uh, like social media, those are for an audience with a limited time frame. Yeah, even though the new thing we had, uh, we just launched a new thing. uh, What is it? Two sides of the canvas where it's like a split screen uh, sketch session with myself and one of my other co-artists, Grady Williams. We leave everything like pretty much in a like one hour time span. And that's the online audience. Now, I don't want to really have them there for 15 hours or 10 hours. Five hours. It's more of like, what can we do like within an hour? Some of them are like even maybe like 10 to 15 minutes as well. What can be done in 10 or 15 minutes that someone can take away from watching this and really get a gist of how I work and formulate things on the paper?
0: I didn't see whether you had any of those time lapse ones where you do, you know, just film yourself for 15 hours and then speed it up so it shows in in five minutes.
3: Yeah, time lapse. uh, I will get into uh, some of those soon. But ours are more like a live stream, drawing and sketching and painting. Uh, those are on like IG uh, Live, actually. Some Facebook stuff as well, too.
0: With your technique of putting so much story in, can you tell a little about how you, as a viewer, work? So, you know, if you're looking at Guernica or something, I mean, it's it's hard when it's something like Guernica that is passed down to you, like, oh, this is the story. It's about this war, as opposed to something that is, and you know that it's from a guy you're supposed to think is really great because he's famous. <laughs> You know, it's been handed, the canon has handed it to you as opposed to an artist that you know personally or just something you're finding on the internet. But yeah, say a little about sort of what level of story you're imputing to something you would just run into in terms of stories as well. Or is it more, I'm an artist and so I appreciate the colors and the forms and I'm not so uh, vulgar as to jump in and try to identify with the characters in the story.
3: Yeah, I would say long ago, I appreciated technique more. But now it's more of like a multi-layers of checkboxes that I'm looking for to really uh, you know, validate a successful work of art. If it's like a work of art in a gallery scene, for an example, first thing is how I connect with that particular piece. Then like, why do I connect to that particular piece? I start looking at the timing and the composition of the piece. What do I see first? What do I see second? What do I see third? So is the timing, does it lay itself out like a book or a movie? But, you know, as a single image, you know, I look for all of these type of things. And of course, all the other stuff, technique, presentation, rendering, craftsmanship, to me, that's last. I look for that initial sort of, and if you're referring to things like street art, depending on what type of art it is, I judge it on a different sort of level. So with street art, for example, I look at how well it's integrated into an environment. So if it's a painting on a square building with surrounded by a lot of cactus. What type of tangencies is the artist using to lock in that painting and make it look like it's an extension of that environment? What eye trickery is being used with dimensionality and things like that, that's clever. That's how I'm looking at street art. Gallery art, I, yeah, it's a little bit different series of check boxes for that, you know, like timing, composition. Children's books, for example, I look at how well those images back up those words. But even still, it's not like a one-item thing. I'm judging it with uh, with children's books. I like to see how the artists interpreted those words in a clever way. I, you know, I think that like yeah, Green Eggs and Ham was a great example of from an art perspective balance. You know, not only balance with shapes and objects, things in like a physical space, but also graphically how well the illustration is balanced out with a white background. How well the illustration points and embellishes that block of text how well that illustration works from page to page as a sequence. So I'm looking at it more on, on that level with children's books. So yeah, depending on what type of art and application it is, I judge it a little bit differently. In a gallery scene too, it's not all like, oh yeah, I'm looking at everything with you know composition first, whatever, because it might be more of something that's, you could have like a, a sculpture in there or a more of a abstract piece of graphic design type of work that's displayed with typography. So I'm looking at that a little bit
1: different. I have two questions based on what you just said. The first might be really stupid, but can you explain (laughs) what does timing mean? Oh, timing
3: in the competition.
1: In reference to like gallery art.
3: Sure. So with more traditional sort of figurative work with like scenery and people, figures in there, I look at what the painter wants us to see first, how they're setting us up, basically. So a lot of times, you know, you look up in that, upper left corner and usually a triangle for example in the composition a triangular sort of method is uh, very strong what do you see first as the sort of like intro and how do clouds and things like that or rooftops work your way across that piece maybe pick up a couple little other morsels of that story then you hit that second point and it's like oh there's some guy over here and his arm is like down this way with a sword and the sword is like pointing at like this slayed creature on the ground so it's like i saw this thing first over here second and my eye is led to that final sort of big thing right there so that's what i mean by like timing and, and art gotcha
1: the other question was you haven't mentioned in your check boxes whether or not something makes you feel something now i wonder if that's because those check boxes all are together in like they create what makes you feel something good or bad i mean I think that's how a lot of people judge whether or not a piece of artwork is successful is if it just inspires something within you. How does that factor in for you?
3: That definitely factors in. So I know with group shows, a lot of group shows that I have been to, I browse around and I don't give every piece the same amount of time. Some pieces I stop in front of and I'm like, why did I just do that? And the more I look into that particular piece or pieces that I stopped in front of and trying to dissect it, those are the ones that strike some sort of feeling in my heart, in my mind. The other ones, I kind of pass them up because when you take all those things together and present it on that canvas or whatever surface it is, it just didn't do anything for me. But I like to figure out why did this piece strike me as interesting and engaging? What can I learn from this particular piece? Who did this piece?
0: And things like that. To rope this back to narrative, I would think that a lot of the way you were just describing the way things make you feel, make, engage you, it sounds like it's engaging you in a, at least a semi-narrative sense, right? It's not just, I don't know what it is about this color blue. It's just arresting. I mean, that can be one thing, but it seems more likely what's going to draw you in is there is something compelling about it. Well, what is that? Well, it's a something that presents itself as having a hidden story. Does that seem accurate? In most cases,
3: yes. And in some cases, I wouldn't be able to even tell you why. I, I like something. I, it's just like, I like that. Wow. I recently saw some flower pieces. I can't remember the artist's name, but it was like some tile flowers, black background, very almost offset 3D sort of flair to it. And I'm like, you know what? I really like that piece. I'm probably going to buy that piece. I want that piece around me in my collection so it can inspire me to do new things with my art, or maybe it can inspire me to think different in life. But sometimes I can't tell you what it is. It's some sort of unwritten code or feeling that goes back in time, I guess, tens of thousands of years. It's like wired into all of us, why we like particular things. It's weird because sometimes with my collection of art, meaning the art that I've actually created, I could have a favorite piece, but the one that I hate the most that I almost want to throw away in the trash is the one that people love the most. So it's like, it's the weirdest thing. So I'm sure that a lot of other artists, the piece that I was engaged to, It might be the piece that they want to give away and just hate the most, but I could see their genius in it though.
1: Yep. I see that with musicians a lot, like friends who create albums and I'm like, oh my God, I love this album. They're like, I'm totally over that album. I hate every song on it. I hate listening to it. I love going to art galleries and I particularly love going to modern art galleries, but no matter what type of gallery I'm at, I found that the thing that intrigues me the most is color. If I am not drawn to the color composition, I tend to just walk past it and go to the next one. Yeah. So it can be abstract or not. I love bright colors in particular. I love something that makes me feel, I don't know if it even necessarily makes me feel happy, but it makes me feel inspired in some way. And so much has to do with color. And then I see that reflected in my own home where I always want a pop of something really bright.
3: Yeah. I think people have their preference and colors that make them move for sure.
1: I like that. Colors that make you move.
3: Yeah. Like you look in my closet, it's like all grays and brown. My wife is like, geez, aren't you going to buy anything with bright colors? I'm <laughs> like, no. <laughs> so same thing with the painting. So that's just my preference. Yeah. Gray, brown, eggshell, white.
1: You use a lot of reds too, right? Yeah. Reds and oranges.
3: Yeah. And they're just in the right places. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of green. Yeah.
2: I have the same one. My, my wife calls it the Brian rainbow. <laughs> it's from, it's, it's all shades of drab. And <laughs> In <laughs> Erica, I, I haven't gotten around. I know I have this blank wall behind me. I know this is great listening, everybody, but I finally have some photos and there are black and white ones that are going up behind me. And color doesn't really mean that much to me, but what I, I think always grabs me is tension. And if I see kind of that dramatic moment, and even if it, could, it might be an intellectual tension in something or in pop art, or it could be you know visual tension, but I, I think that's usually what grabs me or if I'm looking at two things and... One is so much clearly, quote unquote, better, but more meaningful for me. And it's usually I I can identify that there is something going on in one that I feel is pulling me in different directions in a way that something else might not be. I think that's why I'm really drawn to pop art, because there's a bit of decoding that has to go on. And there's, I think, some intellectual tension trying to figure out what's being done or why I'm responding emotionally the way I am to something
0: so I have a lot of appreciation for that, for sure. I asked Joseph, let me ask you, Brian and Erica, about how much of your enjoyment of a piece of art comes out of the narrative that you impute to it. It seems like, Brian, you were at least resisting the author's narrative. You were just describing your own reactions. The word story or narrative, nothing like that came up. It's more just a feeling. It's a grasping at something. It may or may not be part of it,
2: but I don't think it's a necessary part of it for me.
1: I would agree for the most part, unless I find something really terrible about that narrative, and then you just can't get it out of your head, and then it's really hard to like something. But usually the more that I find out about a piece of art, the more intrigued I am and the more impressed I am by it. There are certain pieces that that will grab me, and then you know I, I have a few pieces by friends who are artists, and I will initially pick out the piece of art based on the way it looks and the way it makes me feel, and then I will ask them what it means, and then it has more of a personal connection to the artist for me and then i like to share that story with friends who ask about it right so there is the storytelling of i guess that is an important part but it's not the primary reason i'm drawn to something
3: another thing too that i think that adds value to a piece is the process of the how it was actually made so that's another big selling point you know it's like oh this artist stood on his head and painted this (laughs) with Yeah, you know, with a brush in his mouth, balancing on top of a building. Oh my gosh, is that much more uh, level of difficulty? He was doing it during the earthquake. You know, it's that just adds more uh, value and backstory to that piece. And also, not only that, the story of the actual person who created that piece. So, what drove them to use that particular process?
1: I'm looking at this beautiful piece that you have called "Elements of Inspiration," and I gotta ask why you have an honorable mention. looks like an honorable mention trophy as your elements of inspiration.
3: Yeah. So that's the one with the green background, right? In the very classic frame. Yes. The honorable mention is that's what I used to get in high school competing with all the art contests. So everything you see in that particular piece are all of the things that drove me to become an artist. So whether it's like trophies on there, there's a lungfish at the bottom, there's guns, at the bottom, you know, avoiding, avoiding like dangerous, you know, uh, upbringing, things like that. And the trophies honorable mission. Yeah. It doesn't say first place or second place. I used to get honorable mention and I wanted people to know that I didn't start off winning. I started off losing for a long time and it took a lot of work to get where I am. So that is an inspiration honorable mention because I had to notch up and work my way up to, you know, winning first place in contests. So yeah, that's inspirational for me. Losing is inspiring too.
1: I really like this painting.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Joseph. Oh, my pleasure.
3: I am glad to be a part of it as well. Thanks for having me on.
2: Hey, I have a question for you, and that has to do with the sketch that you showed us earlier. Oh, yeah. The Go-Go Greta uh, development sketches. Is that something that is online or that can be
3: shared? Yes, definitely. So if you go onto the GoGoGreta.com website, so G-O-G-O-G-R-E-T-A.com website, I believe there's a section called Our Story. And I believe that's the section where it shows behind the scenes how we develop the project.
1: Just so we put that out there too, can you just tell people what is the significance of Go Go Greta and why their kids might enjoy these books?
3: Plug it. Yeah. So, Go Go Greta, the world's busiest girl, does it all. So, she's all about just letting kids know they can be anything they want to be. So, whether it's like riding on the back of giant butterflies. Or driving a truck on ice skates, whatever it is, anything your imagination could imagine, or anything you want to be in life, you can do that. If GoGo Greta can do it, you can do it too. So, kids, adults, boys, girls, they just really latched onto the project and accepted it. And it's just like a symbol of inspiration for all kids out there.
1: That's awesome. All
0: right. Given how positive the messages of your paintings are, I'm going to, uh, suppress making any sort of snide comment about how hard it is to hold up a head that is that percentage compared to your body weight uh, <laughs> <laughs> damn it i just did it i just made the comment. way to hold back mark all right <laughs> way to not mention something so long listeners thanks everybody all right thank you check out josephwatsonart.com Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts.